time for God's word. I'm going to invite you to just turn with me. All of the pews have Bibles, and I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be reading from chapter 11. It's going to be on page 1,784. Page 1,784. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, and moving uh, and finishing the whole chapter. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, and the whole point of the letter is that the church in Corinth, the group of Christians that live there together and are worshiping God together and following the ways of Jesus together, um, their, their church has a lot of problems, has a lot of issues in it. And 1 Corinthians is the letter that the Apostle Paul writes in order to systematically address each of those issues. And as I've already said, today we're going to be reading the section on the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, Wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, 
it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If someone asked you, this is a question for you, I actually want you to think about it. If someone asked you to describe our worship services here at ACRC, what would you say? How would you describe them? What would you say first? What would you leave out? Maybe you'd be quick to mention that we do a lot of singing, but you'd leave out the part about taking up an offering. Maybe you'd talk about how we always, you know, reflect on a passage of the Bible, but you would not mention how long the sermons sometimes are. How would you describe what we do together? This question was posed to me this summer. I was in our parking lot with my children. They were playing hockey. And a man pulled into the parking lot in his vehicle, literally drove right up to me where I was standing, put his vehicle in park, put down the window, and he said, hey, uh, my family and I are new in town, and we're looking for a church. Uh, what are the church services like here? He found the right lady. I was kind of thrilled about that. But what do you say? This is what I said, and I am wondering if it lines up with what you would have said. Um, well, the main part of our worship service is uh, reading from the Bible, and then the pastor kind of talks about that for a bit. But before and after that, we do a lot of singing and praying. How did I do? Thumbs up from Jerry, thanks. Well, I have to tell you, that after studying today's scripture passage, it is my hunch that if the Apostle Paul had been standing with me in the parking lot that hot summer day, he might have been a little bummed about how I didn't mention the Lord's Supper. And to be completely honest, the Lord's Supper didn't even cross my mind. What does that mean? How important is the Lord's Supper to what we do when we get together on Sunday mornings? Is it central? Or is it just a side thing? Is it essential? Or is it just like an add-on that you can take or leave? I'll leave those questions with you. And now let's dive into today's passage to see what God wants to say to us about this. The outline of the passage is actually very clear, and I'm just going to walk us through each section as it comes. The first section tells us what the problem is, and there is absolutely a big problem with how the church in Corinth is doing the Lord's Supper. The middle section clarifies the importance and meaning of the Lord's Supper, and then the last section is the solution to the problem, so to speak. It tells us how to make it right, how to make it better. So, the problem. What's going on here? This passage opens with verse 17, which reads, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm 
then good. When I read this passage for the first time earlier this week, these opening words stopped me dead in my tracks. They hit me like a ton of bricks. I had to pause. I had to read them a few times. Your meetings do more harm than good. Your gatherings aren't beneficial. They're detrimental. When you get together for worship, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. In my opinion, especially as a pastor who cares a lot about how we gather, this is a scathing bit of feedback. Our gatherings are a huge part of what we do together. Imagine hearing they do more harm than good. Ouch. So that's the tone. Paul opens this way, of course, because in his opinion, this problem is severe. It turns out that there are divisions in the church community which have made their way into the Lord's Supper. That's the problem. There are divisions in this church community that have made their way into the Lord's Supper. Divisions are a problem in and of themselves, of course, but the real issue here is that these divisions are being played out or reflected during the worship service in the Lord's Supper. From verse 18 on on. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, and another person gets drunk. In order to properly picture what's happening here, we need to keep in mind a few things about the Roman Empire. So this is sort of the history bit or the cultural context. First, Roman society at this time was extremely divided between social groups. You have men and you have women. You have this racial group and you have that racial group. You have rich people and you have poor people. You have property owners and you have slaves and laborers. These social groups were well known clearly visible and completely accepted across the board. Second, Roman eating habits reflected the lines between these social groups. We know from archaeology and excavation dating back to this time that a typical home of a wealthy Roman person had multiple rooms in it. Food would have been eaten in a smaller central dining room. Just outside of this smaller central dining room was the atrium, a larger room, and outside of that was the courtyard. Wealthier, more important people were served and ate in that central room, where there were likely expensive couches and lots of privacy. Lesser important people were served in the atrium, and so on. Okay, so the divisions between social groups and Roman society were mimicked and how they ate, the most important, getting the best spots, and therefore the best food. Now, picture what is happening when the Christians of Corinth are meeting together. They didn't have a church building. It is highly likely that they would gather in the home of one of their wealthier members, which is great, of course. However, when it came time to eat together, to break bread 
and drink wine together as Jesus their Lord had instructed them to do to remember him, the rich were seated in the seats of privilege and were served first. And the poor, arriving later, likely because of a long work day, were seated in their usual spots in the atrium and courtyard and finding that by the time the food was getting to them, well, there just wasn't much left. The result is that some are leaving church hungry and some are leaving church drunk. Imagine, imagine being a Christian in Corinth who also works as a slave. Imagine going to church to meet with Jesus and to meet with your people and imagine there not being enough dinner for you. Imagine heading back to your place of work hungry. And note the mention of drunkenness. While getting intoxicated is wrong according to the Bible, it is interesting to me that the problem is not the drunkenness per se. Paul is actually not ticked that people are getting drunk during the worship service. He is ticked about the disparity. He is ticked about the division. Some are getting way too much, way too much, and some aren't getting anything at all. The divisions of society were being carried into the church, even into the Lord's Supper. The reason why this is such a problem has to do with what the Lord's Supper is, what the Lord's Supper means. This is the next section now of the passage. Paul explains the meaning of the Lord's Supper beginning at verse 23. These are words that you should be familiar with because we say them together before we do the Lord's Supper here at ACRC. The Lord Jesus himself, right? On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Paul is writing. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Blood was something that Jewish people were extremely familiar with. When God poured out his judgment on the sins of Egypt, the blood of a lamb was smeared on Jewish doors. That lamb died so that they wouldn't have to. That blood was shed to spare them the punishment declared upon the land. When God then established the Jews as his special people under Moses' leadership in the desert, a whole system of animal sacrifices was set up. Reminiscent of that first lamb in Egypt, these animals died so that God's sinful people wouldn't have to. Their blood paid for the sins of the people. When Jesus raised the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus was saying, I am the sacrifice. I will be the one to die 
my blood will be shed to pay for the sins of God's people. In the Old Covenant, sacrifices needed to be made all the time because they were imperfect and incomplete in what they could accomplish. But in the New Covenant, established through Jesus, the sacrifice would be once and for all. This blood was perfect. This blood was sufficient. This blood wouldn't just cover the sins of today or tomorrow, but would pay for the sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future, forever. So was the Lord's Supper just a gathering with friends? Is it just a habit, a practice, a thing we do at church? No way. It's a sign, a remembrance, a proclamation of the blood which pays for our sins and makes us right with God. I love verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we do the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming something. We are preaching something. It turns out that David and I aren't the only preachers around here. We all proclaim the death of Jesus when we do the Lord's Supper. We all preach the death of Jesus when we do the Lord's Supper. This is our sermon to each other. This is our sermon to the world. This is the message we declare. We can so easily get bent out of shape on how to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and our colleagues and our family members and our friends, what to say, how to say it, how to get it right. Have you ever considered saying, just come and see? Have you ever considered saying, just come to church so I can show you something? Come and see the Lord's Supper. Because when we raise the bread and the cup and then pass them around and take them in, we are proclaiming this death is everything. Jesus has absorbed the judgment. He has paid the price, and now our sins are no more. We are free. We are loved. We are at peace with our God. If this is what the Lord's Supper means, and it is what it means, do worldly divisions belong here? Friends, social groups are completely irrelevant when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ. They mean nothing. They are meaningless. Each one of us, whether rich or poor, is a sinner. Each one of us, whether rich or or poor, is completely incapable of bearing the judgment our sins deserve or saving ourselves, we are all just sinners before the cross. And in the same way, just as we are all sinners before the cross, we are now each counted as saints before the cross. Our main status now is not rich or poor, or male or female, or this racial group, or that racial group, or whatever, our main status now, each and every one of us, is covered. Covered. Forgiven. Free. Right with God. Because of the blood. 
because of that death. We were equal in sinner status before the cross, and now we are equal in sainthood status because of the cross. Sense Paul's exasperation here. You are making a deal of rich and poor? Seriously? Divisions have no place in the church of God, especially not at the Lord's Supper where we have been made one through his death. The last section of this passage, which we're going to look at now, offers the solution, so to speak. The problem has been exposed. The seriousness of it has been highlighted. But what now? How are the Christians in Corinth supposed to make this situation right? Well, the Apostle Paul gives them two pieces of instructions for going forward in their worship services. The first thing comes to us in verses 28 and 29. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. The Apostle Paul is calling the church to self-examination. Instead of unintentionally, haphazardly letting societal divisions play out in the way they do the Lord's Supper, he is asking them to examine themselves, to discern, to recognize, to think about it. Some people have taken the call to examine themselves to mean that they're supposed to reflect on their personal relationship with God. They think it's like a vertical action, this bit of instruction here. Like, where is my heart at in relation to God? How am I doing in my connection to God and God's will? There is certainly a place for that kind of reflection, and we actually do that quite a bit during our worship services together. But that is actually not what Paul is asking the Corinthians to do here. He's not saying that before the Lord's Supper they need to be asking, how am I doing with God? He's saying that before they do the Lord's Supper, they need to be asking themselves, how are we doing? How are we doing? This self-examination is primarily about discerning the body, the body of believers. Are we reflecting the death of Jesus in our gathering? Are we reflecting all that his death accomplished for us in our gathering? Are we demonstrating that we are all sinners saved by this sacrifice? Are we demonstrating that we are now his saints together brought into a new family? Are we showing that we are one in him? Or are we letting worldly divisions play out among us where some get more and some get less, some get in, some get out, some get attention, some don't get the time of day, some are first valued, privileged, and some are last not valued and left behind. This is the self-examination Paul is imploring that the church there in Corinth do. Discern the body. Think about it. Take a good look. Examine yourselves. How are we doing here at ACRC? I wonder. 
Are we letting divisions in? Let's examine ourselves. Let's discern the body so that our gatherings, and especially the Lord's Supper, might truly proclaim his death. That's the first thing to be done. The second thing to be done is found in verse 33. Now at the very end of the passage. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. You'll notice that this reading is slightly different than the reading from the Pew Bibles. In the Pew Bibles, it said, wait for each other. In the NIV from 2011, they've put, when you get gathered to eat, you should all eat together. If the first step is to examine themselves, to discern the body, to ask, how are we doing? That second step is instructions to then make a move. It's a call to action. Reflect on how you're doing and then do the work that's necessary. When you gather, you should all eat together. Make your practice of the Lord's Supper align with Jesus' death and your oneness in him. As I already alluded to, the verb translated, you should all eat together, has multiple meanings and can be translated in multiple ways. Listen to some of these possibilities. Wonder with me what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. When you gather to eat, wait for each other. When you gather to eat, welcome each other. When you gather to eat, receive one another. When you gather to eat, you should all be eating together. No one left out. No one going unnoticed. No one relegated to second place. Eat together. How could we do this better here at our church? How might we deepen our commitment to shedding whatever divisions sort of exist out there and being truly one in here when we gather together to worship and do the Lord's Supper? How might this look in our worship services? How might this look in our relationships with one another? At the very beginning of the sermon, I told you about an interaction that I had with a neighbor in the parking lot this summer who was asking about our worship services. How would you describe what we do when we are together? And does the Lord's Supper make the cut? This whole passage presupposes that when Christians gather, they will be doing the Lord's Supper because it is of utmost importance. For when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Nothing else we can do captures the heart of our salvation like the Lord's Supper. So let's continue to do it with joy and as one as we wait for the day that Jesus returns and he welcomes us to his table where we will eat together forever. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have not only called us into worship 
and allowed us to worship and given us your spirit so that we can worship you together. But you have also given us this amazing gift, the Lord's Supper. I pray, oh God, that as we continue to do the Lord's Supper as a church here, Alliston Christian Reformed Church, that our practice of this will continually and always be a beautiful proclamation of your death, Jesus, and how it has changed everything. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to lead us and guide us as we do this together. And I just pray, especially, Spirit, that you would fall upon our gathering, that our worship, whether we're singing or doing the Lord's Supper or receiving your word, might be invigorated by you, that we might uh, thirst for you, that we might seek your face, that we might truly rejoice in you, that we might love you in your word, and that we might be so eager to be celebrating and proclaiming this death. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to die for us. Thank you that we get to taste that and feel that and be reminded of that again and again. To your name be the praise and glory.